to Revelation chapter 3. We'll read beginning at verse 14 and read through verse 22. We come this morning to the last of the seven churches of Revelation. And I felt that this morning we should deal with this. The next Lord's Day we'll begin to deal with the things that will be hereafter. I hope you have noticed, I'm sure you have, our chart over the back of the choir. Many of you have a personal chart that's just like that. And if you will take note, we are in that period that we have designated as the age of the church. And we're considering that. This is God's outline of history, the outline of the book of Revelation. And we're dealing with the things indeed that are, the things that are. Beginning at verse 14, the last of the seven letters, and the scripture verse begins like this and says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou saidst, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked." I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup or fellowship with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This seventh in a series of letters that our Lord has written to seven distinct and particular churches gives us a picture of the final state of the church just prior to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, every one of these churches from the very first the ch- to the church of Ephesus and right on through until you come to this last letter, our last church, the church of Laodicea, all of these churches give to us a representative picture of the characteristic of the church in particular eras or areas of that history of the church from the time of its beginning ministry at Pentecost even until the church is taken out of this world. And so we come to that picture of Laodicea that portrays accurately, without any question, the age that you and I are presently in. 
Here then I want us to note a few things that our Lord reveals concerning the condition of the church prior to his coming. In verse number one, the message is addressed by our Lord to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. I think I've explained to you before that the word angel coming from a word that means messenger could rightly and does, I think, uh, apply to to the pastor, the leader of that particular church. Indeed, the pastor is no angel if you're thinking in the terms of halos and uh, angel wings and, uh, and so forth. But indeed, he is a man of awesome responsibility. I quake and tremble as I think of standing before this congregation from Sunday to Sunday, realizing the responsibility that God has given to me. For that reason, I need so much the prayers of every member of this church. I feel the responsibility. I recognize that if, I, that if our church is to be all that it should be, that indeed I must be all that I should be. I need not only your prayers, but I need indeed your understanding knowing indeed that a preacher is but a, but a human and, and prone to error and to mistakes and failures in life. I need not only your prayers then, but I need your understanding. I would say as well, I need your encouragement. Sometimes we have the idea that our preacher never needs encouraging, but he is just as much in need of encouragement as anybody else is. There are times when I'm ready to throw in the towel. There are times when I'm ready to just say, Lord, I think I'd do better uh, uh, raising cattle. And yet on second thought, the Lord reminds me I'm not too good at that anyhow. But the whole story is this, I need that encouragement. And definitely you are an encouragement to me as your pastor as you come Sunday after Sunday and service after service. And I see your interest and I hear your words and I I watch you as you grow. Uh, Even those things are encouraging to my own heart. I need as well your patience. And I think any man of God would tell you that he needs a, a patient congregation. There are things that we'd like to do that we're not able to do immediately. Not only does the congregation need patience, but the pastor needs patience as well. And so here is a message that is addressed to the man who is considered the messenger of the church of Laodicea. The name Laodicea, I think, is very significant. As I think you'll find that the choice of every one of these seven churches by their names are very significant and the meaning of those names apply to certain conditions and needs in those particular churches. So does this church, Laodicea. The name Laodicea means literally the people speak. The people speak. Now then as you know that, I think you'll find uh, when you read this particular letter and consider it that the church of Laodicea seemed to be far more interested in man's uh, voice than he is uh, and they were the voice of God. Would you say that seems to be a characteristic of this present age uh, of our religious world, of our church world? 
men are far more impressed and concerned with the opinions of men about them than they are God's opinion. We're more interested in hearing what man says than we are what thus saith the Lord. In other words, here is a day, the church of Laodicea, when people are following their own way, following their own will, listening to the voice of man instead of listening to the voice of the Lord God. I think we could say it in another word and you'd get the picture. It is a church that's great emphasis is upon, hang on, on democracy. We say, don't you believe in democracy? Yes, I do. I think by far it is the fairest form of government in our age. But I want to tell you, that is not God's ultimate plan of government. God's plan of government is not democracy, a rule by the people, but God's plan is a theocracy, which is rule by God himself. And that is what this very age of ours is headed toward. You see, wherever man is ruled, you find what? You find a mess on your hands. You find confusion. You find strife. But yet again, that is God's choice as far as government is concerned today. But what I want you to get is the, imp- the imp- implication from the word democracy as it applies to the church of Laodicea. And that is, it was an age and is an age when people are crying for their own rights. It is a time, not only in in the religious world, but the political world. And I think it is only an indication, again, a sign of of the closing out of this particular age before the Lord comes again. The cry is heard from Europe. It is heard from China. It is heard even from Russia today. It is heard in South Africa. It is heard all around this globe of ours. It is the cry for democracy. Democracy. It is the rule of the people. And so I don't want you to go away misunderstanding me and saying that our pastor doesn't believe in democracy. I do believe in that as far as government affairs are concerned. But I want you to understand this. That basically within the heart of man, that has been our trouble from the beginning. It was man in the Garden of Eden who said, I want to have my rights. I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. I want to give my own, I want to develop my own theology. I want to develop my own life. And so with that, he abandoned the rule of God over his life. And that's a trouble our homes today. It is a banding of the rule of God, the authority of God. We listen to the voice of everybody under the sun instead of listening to the voice of God. Now, won't you notice, the apparent emphasis then in this letter as we've read it together is on what is said. That is, it emphasizes the voice. So I want you to think with me here about the voice of our Lord. Look at this in verse 14 and you'll see the contrast. And unto the angel of the church of the people speaks, write these things, Seth, the amen. Got two voices there. You have the voice of men. You have the voice of God. The Lord said, I'm writing to you who are listening and are more interested in what man's opinion is and man says than you are mine, but I want you to hear my voice. 
So the verse begins at verse number 14 with introducing to us the worthiness of his voice. His voice indeed is worthy and is deserving of our attention. Listen, there are voices that are clamoring for our attention all around this world and in our society. The voice of the world of entertainment. The voice of a Hollywood the voice of the money, monetary world, the voice of the business world, the voice of the psychological world, the voice of the social world, and their voice is clamoring, clamoring, clamoring constantly for us to hear what they have to say. And the tragedy is the majority of people are listening to those voices without any concern with what God's voice says whatsoever. And I think, you, I think you know that, do you not? Amen? You know that? All right, now watch carefully. His voice deserves your attention. Why? He gives three reasons. Look at verse 14. His voice is the voice of final authority. You find it concealed in the little word, amen. Notice that he says, these things saith the amen. That's the final word. That's the voice of final authority. The word amen simply means God said it and so let it be. Let it be as he has declared. So here is the voice of finality. You see, you need to hear what God says for the simple reason. He has and will have the final say-so on any of the affairs that have to do with this world, with this creation, with mankind. God's word is the voice of final authority. But isn't it strange how we, though know that inwardly, we'll turn to everybody else's voice. There is no higher court of appeal. There is no higher source or authority to which we can go to hear the final word. I remember growing up in our family, uh, mom and dad's voice was always clear and authoritative. But my dad's voice was the voice of final authority. I could often go to mama and I'd say, mama, when in my teenage years I wanted to ride the car, I'd say, mama, can I have the car tonight? You know what she'd say? Go ask your daddy. Go ask your daddy. And if I'd go to dad and dad should happen to say, no, you cannot have it tonight. Listen, there's no other voice I could go to. I could go whine to grandpa. I could whine to grandma. But what dad said was the voice of finality in the affairs of our own family. And so when we come to this word, amen, we find that it is the suggestion that his voice is the voice of final authority. And I'll tell you something else. His voice is the final authority on salvation. He's the one who says who's saved and who's not saved. Some fellas say, oh, I'm saved because I live a good life. That's not the final authority. Well, somebody said, my church says you're saved if you join the church and, and you're baptized. Boy, you're saved. That's the voice of the church. That's not the voice of final authority. The Lord says the man that believes on him that's saved. Not the villagers join the church, turns on who leave, joins a club of do better, changes his life into a moral upright person. His voice is final. It is his voice that will be the last voice heard when this world closes up shop and the heavens melt away and, and vanish from, uh, from us forever. God's voice the voice that is final. Now with a voice like that, you ought to hear him. The final authority. You need to hear what he says on a matter. Not only that, but notice, his voice is worthy to hear because it is a faithful voice. These things, look at the verse. 
these things at the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now listen, there are a lot of folks that you can listen to and not even worth hearing because you know from experience what they tell you is not trustworthy and is not true. You don't have everybody listening. Don't waste your time with that. The Lord said, you need to hear my voice because I'm going to be trustworthy. What I may tell you may hurt and may wound like a dagger pierced into your heart, but you can bank on one thing. God will tell you the truth. He is not out to try to win some popularity contest with us. He is not out trying to impress anybody. Who does God have to impress anybody? You or me? Not on your life. So God speaks the truth. And if you want to know the truth and the true witness about your life, about life as it is and ought to be, go to God. He'll speak the truth when you may find that others may flatter you and may butter you up to gain your approval. God's not in that business. He comes along and tells a man, you're a sinner. Now, that doesn't gain too much applause, does it? It doesn't gain too much applause when God comes out and says, hey, unless you repent, you're going to perish and go to hell. Oh, that's not too applause. That doesn't gain too much applause. But aren't you glad we have a God who doesn't lie to us? Aren't you glad that God says to us exactly what we need to hear? Now, the church in Laodicea, one of their problems was they were so lukewarm about truth. How would you like to go to a doctor who would like that? Who would really tell you the truth? Perhaps you have some incurable disease and he comes to you and after all the examination, he said, I'll tell you what, knowing that he can't cure you, knowing he doesn't have the answer, he'll say, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you this prescription. It's a sugar sugar coated with some flour or something. You take that three times a day. Now, he said, this is expensive. It's going to cost you about $50 a prescription. But you be sure to come back next Tuesday. That means 50 more bucks. You come back and excuse. Now listen, I listen, I wouldn't trust a fellow like that. If I'm dying with something, I'd like to know about it. I'd like to at least be able to dig part of my grave, wouldn't you? Instead of just coming up there and letting everybody else know it. But he said, listen, I'm faithful. I'm true. You can trust me in what I say. Hey, you can trust him too. That when he said, if you'll believe on him, you'll not perish, but have everlasting life. You can believe him when he says that if you'll come to him and give your heart and life to him, he promises a home in heaven, but you can bank on that. And in the dying, darkest hour of your life, you can rely on what he says. His voice is worthy to be heard not only because of its finality and because of its faithfulness, but notice this unusual statement at verse 14. The beginning of the creation of God Somebody said one time to me when I read that, does that mean that Jesus is the first thing God ever created? Not at all. Jesus is God. He is as, listen, he is as as eternal as God himself, for he is God. He is God manifest in the flesh. Now watch this. The word beginning here in the Greek language does not suggest the first In a series, that is like first, second, third. It is not that idea at all. The word implies the first in a cause. Say it again. The first in a cause. So what he is saying is this, is simply this. He is the first cause of all the creation of God. That's what John says about him in his prologue in chapter 1. 
Without him was not anything made that was made. He is the very beginning, the origin of this universe. He is the creator of this universe. And thus if he is, you deserve to hear him. His voice is worthy to be heard. Listen, if you're having trouble with an automobile, would you want to listen to a fella that didn't know the front end from the back end of a car? That didn't know an engine from a tire? Would you want to, would you want to waste your time listening to that? No, but I'm going to tell you who I'd like to listen to. A man who knows something about that. And I think the fellow who really ought to know something about it is the guy who invented it. The fellow who made that automobile, he ought to know something about it. I've told you the story of the old fellow bought his first T-model. He started off down the country. And as he and his wife riding down that old dirty country road, the old T-model started chugging and spitting and sputtering and finally stopped. He got out, looked at that thing, kicked the tires, looked under it, lifted the hood, looked under at the motor. Couldn't, didn't know a thing about it. Finally, after a few minutes, here came another T-model down the road and stopped on the other side of the old dirt road. And the guy got out, walked over to this fellow and said, Hey, buddy, look, you are having some trouble with that old T-model. The fellow said, I sure am. They just quit. I don't know what's wrong with it. The man said to him, You mind if I take a look at it? Why, no, sir. He said, Help yourself. And the man looked at lifted the latch on it, the hood, looked in there at the motor, twisted the thing or two around, put the hood back down, and said to the fellow, Get up in there, and I'll give her a crank. And that's the days when he had to do this. And he got out there and hit it one time, and that old T model just started clucking right along. Fellow from up behind the steering wheel looked at that man and said, "Hey, buddy, that's amazing. That you 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 must know something about these these contraptions." And the man said, "Well, sir, I ought to. I made that car. My name's Henry Ford." Now, what I'm saying is this: we ought to listen to God's voice because He made us. He's the one who started this thing called life. He's the one who created this thing called the world and the universe. So His voice is deserving of your attention. Hear what he says because his voice is final. His voice is faithful and his voice is the voice of the creator, the first cause behind all of the creation of God. Voice worthy to be heard. I want you to look at verse 15. Not only do you find a voice that is worthy to be heard, but you find verse 15, a voice of knowledge. A voice of knowledge. I know thy works. You know, every man and woman in this house is under divine scrutiny. God said, I know you. Now you can come up with all your flimsy little excuses, puny little excuses. God said, I know you. You don't fool me. I know you. I know what's in your heart. I know where you've been. I know who you are. I know where you live. I know, I know. Not one time in the Bible does the Bible ever say of God, I think, or I suppose, not at all. God knows. He knows the beginning and the end as well and the end from the beginning. I know. So I hear him, his voice is a voice of knowledge. Don't you like to hear a fella talk to you that you know he knows what he's talking about? Huh? God knows what he's talking about. He's not, he's not guessing. He's not thinking. He just knows. He knows, you see. So the thing is, his voice is the voice of knowledge. I know what? Thy works. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. He didn't put any punches. He said, you're not on one side of the fence or the other. You're neither cold, you're neither hot. But notice this. His, his voice is also a voice of desire. For you hear him say, I would thou work cold or hot. 
You see, as he looks at this apostate church, religious, yes. But notice down at verse 20 where Jesus is in relation to this church. He's outside the door knocking. He's not even inside. He's been pushed out. And that's the basic meaning of that word, though verse 20 is often used as, a, as an evangelistic uh, appeal, an invitation. But yet the basic thing is, Jesus is saying, I'm outside the door. Oh, watch carefully here. He said, what my desire is, is that you either be hot or cold. I would that you were one or the other. You're neither on one, or you're not on one side of the fence or the other. Isn't it strange we got people who think they can straddle the fence with God? We think we can, uh, you know, we can be a professed Christian, but not a practicing Christian. We can be one thing on Sunday and something else on Monday. You see, God said, you're either for me or you're against me. Either you're gathering in or you're scattered abroad. There is no neutrality as far as, it, as far as your relationship and mine to Jesus Christ is concerned. Somebody said not long ago, and I said, are you a Christian? They said, well, I may be, I may not be. Well, I said, that's a strange animal. You either are or you're not. It's, the fact is, you have either personally definitely, consciously receive Jesus Christ or you haven't. There is no middle ground when it comes to a fella being a child of God any more than there's any middle ground about a fella going to heaven or hell. You don't go to some middle purgatory limbo state. It's either heaven or hell. And so the thing is, the Lord's saying, you're neither hot nor cold. Now, why does he want them to be one way or the other? It's hard to do anything with a lukewarm person. The kind of person that, well, start me this way, or that's the reason my wife gets upset with me. She'll say, uh, what do you want for supper? Oh, it don't matter. You want chicken or you want, uh, uh, you want uh, uh, what else we have? Beef? <laughs> you want chicken or beef? And I say, oh, it don't make any difference. I wish you'd tell me what you want. Well, it don't make any difference. Don't, don't that irritate you gals, huh? I mean, it does. Now, listen, you can't do much with a lukewarm person. And God said, I wish you were one with other. I wish you're out and out for the devil or out and out for me. But this kind of lukewarm stuff, he said, I don't like that. That's not my desire. In other words, we have another word for lukewarm kind of people. Apathy. Well, sorry to me, whether we go or don't go. You know, I, it's fine with me if anybody gets saved. It don't make a difference to me if they're not. Apathetic and pathetic as well. So here is the voice of, de, uh, of knowledge. I know you, he said. I know you, but a voice of desire. I, 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 I would you were hot or cold. And yet look if, at verse 16. You'll find that also his voice can give the sound of displeasure. Verse 16 again said, So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm displeased. You can hear it in his voice. You ever heard anybody speak to you when you're growing up, especially to your parents? You can tell they're displeased with you. You men and women, you can tell when your husband's displeased with you. Your wife's displeased with you. It comes out in the voice. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I'm displeased with this. He said, this is not my plan nor my desire. I'm displeased with the fact. And yet watch what he said. You'll hear determination in his voice. You see, God is a God of action. 
And he said, because thou art neither neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now the word spew is a little nicer. The actual word is vomit. God said, you're nauseating to me. You're sickening to me. What we need in this day, as our Lord is saying, are men and women who will go all out for God, will go out with no reservation, will be flaming white hot in their dedication, their love, and their service, and their usefulness for God. The Lord despises lukewarmness. And he said, you're sickening, you're nauseating to me, and I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Now somehow I cannot come to bring myself to believe that he's talking to regenerate people. I think rather the Lord here is speaking to those in the church who are not even saved to start with. And we got a lot of folks like that. We may have some folks like that in this church. Every church has them. Many a man, one got his name on the church roll book, never been saved. He's not on one side of the fence or the other. Some people, if you would ask them today, are you saved? They'd have to say, well, I don't know. I may be, may not be. In other words... The Lord is simply saying here that it's got to be one way or the other. And these in the church of Laodicea are saying, well, I just don't really know. And I believe that many of them there, not all of them as is evident, but many of them in that religious day were not even converted. And I fear that that's the picture of the professed church in our last day. Our churches are filled with men and women in many instances don't know a thing in the world about being born again. All they can tell you about being a Christian is I joined the church one Sunday. I walked down the aisle, shook the preacher's hand, he baptized me with a baptistry. That's about all some people know about the reality of a new birth experience. said, if walking down the aisle shaking a preacher's hand and signing the cards, all there is to it, I'd just soon walk down to the barn, write my name on a barn door and shake a donkey's tail and expect that to get me into heaven as to write my name on a church card and shake a preacher's hand and expect that to get me to heaven. The truth is it won't get you there. And yet we have a world full of religious people. Dr. R.A. Torrey years ago, after making a tour around the world, came home and he said to old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. who was living in, he said, Bob, after touring the whole world, preaching every continent on the face of this earth, I am very doubtful that if over 10% of professed Christians really know what it means to be born again. That's frightening. And yet we've got over 50 million people in America who claim to be born again. And I am not a judge, I do not know. But I'm going to tell you the truth is we got many a person of the church, religious as the days long, never been born of the Spirit of God. We wonder why some people never grow. You can't grow telephone poles. You only grow what's got life in it. And you can't grow a fellow spiritually he doesn't have any spiritual life. So the truth is the Lord says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Now if he's talking to saved people, uh, he'd be saying, well, you were in you were with me one time and I'm going to get rid of you. I don't believe that. That's not the language that relates to salvation. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. He didn't say, if you get cold, I'll get rid of you. He didn't say that. He said, you'll never perish. 
All right, so he said of these, you're neither cold nor hot. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Now, let me ask you, look down at verse 17. Notice that his voice turns to the voice of discernment. The voice of discernment. And he says, because thou sayest. I want you to notice that, that expression, thou sayest. We're talking about what they're saying. We're talking about the voice. The voice of the people as opposed to the voice of God. And the Lord saying, you're saying now, I hear what you're saying, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. We don't need anything. And the tragedy in many a heart and mind today is that very opinion. I'm all right like I am, pay my honest debts, try to live decent, moral, take care of my family. I'm all right. Listen, the saddest state a man or woman's ever been in, even in his spiritual life, is to come to that attitude of heart, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. And many a child of God, if they don't say it, they express it in their life. I don't need it. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to be taught the Word of God. I don't need the church. I don't need to be faithful to the church. I don't need to this. To say, I'm rich. I'm increased with good. Man, what I need. I don't have a need of one thing in the world. How different than that other church we looked at who was poor, but Jesus said, you're rich. You're poor, but you're rich. And here's a church who thought they were rich and they were broke. They were poverty stricken spiritually. Notice, thou says I'm rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing. That's the Pharisee's attitude. The old Pharisee went up to the temple to pray. You remember in Luke 18? And when he went up there, he listened. He expressed no need for anything. He bragged about how good he was. I think I'm not as other men are. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not like this publican. Not one time did he ask God for anything. Why? He had no sense of need in his life. And I believe, folks, listen, you have unsaved loved ones. You have people who are out of the will of God right here in our community, right here in our church. And listen, I believe we need to pray, oh, God, help them to become aware of what they need in their life. Make them aware, make them conscious of their need of you, of their need of surrender. And so they have need of nothing. Watch what else said. And knowest not, here's his discernment. You have, and knowest not that thou art wretched. The word wretched means unacceptable. And that very term is never applied to a born-again child of God. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 and said, and we're accepted in the beloved. But of these, he said, you're unacceptable. The only ground of acceptance is in Jesus Christ. You're unacceptable, he said, and miserable. And that word miserable does not apply so much to a sensation or feeling as it does a state. They're in a miserable state. The other day, a fellow showed him an old worn-out vehicle. And he said, boy, ain't that a miserable-looking car? I said, yeah, it sure is. Doesn't run, rusted out in the bottom, wheels flat. I said, that's, 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 that's miserable. And yet, we're talking about a state, a condition. And the Lord said, your condition is one of misery. It is one of wretchedness. And he said, no, that, but why do you think you're rich? You're poor. Why, you're bankrupt. You don't have anything in your account. You're bankrupt spiritually and all that. But he said, you're blind and you're naked. Now then watch, verse 18. His voice turns to the voice of a counselor. And he said, I counsel thee, buy of me gold tried in the fire. The word buy suggests an exchange. God's saying, turn loose of the counterfeit thing you've got and take what I'm offering you that is genuine and real. 
And that's what he says. Buy of me what? Gold tried in the fire. What you have is counterfeit. Somebody said, oh, I'm a Christian. I joined the church when I was a child. I can hear God saying counterfeit. Oh, but I try to live a decent life and therefore I'm going to heaven when I die. And God said counterfeit. He said exchange that counterfeit stuff. And I'll give you that that's been proven and tried. Gold that has been put through the furnace. It is the real, the genuine article. So he's saying, you don't have to, you don't have to have that counterfeit kind of life. You have what's real. And then notice quickly. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. Oh, they were clothed in the finest apparel. But in God's sight, they were naked. And he said, in the, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. The shame of thy nakedness. Nakedness, still a shame. It's a strange thing since God put clothes on man. Man's been trying to take them off ever since. Isn't that something? God made him coats of skin in the Garden of Eden and man's been trying to undress ever since. You ever notice when Jesus healed that demoniac fella? He didn't have a stitch on. But amazingly, after Jesus' touch came in his life, the Bible said, and he is found clothed in that strain, seated at the feet of Jesus, and in his right mind. Isn't that something? Listen, naked is still a shame. And sin is the greatest shame of all. Still a shame. And God is saying, there's no way for you to be covered in that shameful state of your sin by your own goodness. He is saying, by taking me, uh, by me clothes, uh, be, uh, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with thyself, that thou mayest see. He wanted them to see. Wanted to see their condition. Wanted them to see their condemnation. Wanted them to see Christ. And man in his blindness, God is saying, you need to open those eyes. You need to see. So these are blinded. What a condition this is. And then if you will look at verse 19, there's the voice of compassion. He said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous. And the word zealous means quick. Be quick about it. Be zealous. Therefore, and repent. Isn't it wonderful that you find all of these things wrong with these religionists in Laodicea? And yet the Lord's saying, I love you. I love you. If I can bring certain things to bear that cause you to do an about face, that's what I want to do. I love you. Even in his pronouncements of judgment and condemnation, there is the wonderful joy of knowing that he loves and he had rather forgive than to condemn. So here's the voice of compassion. Finally, look at verse 20. You find the voice of salvation. You've heard it time and again. But remember the first application, primary application is to the church. Jesus on the outside. Listen, if Jesus, listen, if Jesus Christ is not in the church, it's nothing but a little social club. Might as well shut the doors. There are better clubs to join elsewhere. But oh, how sad to find in the average church today no presence of Christ. He's left out. He's on the outside. The religious world cares little about the Son of God. They, say, they show it by their denial of his virgin birth, of his deity, of his blood atonement, of the promises, the truth that he's spoken. Many a church today hears nothing but some kind of little social lecture, some little psychological counsel. But what we need today is hear the voice of God from the Word of God. 
So he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock I'm on the outside. When a man knocks at the door, it's indicative of the fact he wants to come in and that you've got to, you've got to, you've got to make a decision. You can either, when somebody knocks on your door, rings your doorbell, you can answer it or go hide in the bedroom somewhere and refuse to answer it. But when you refuse to answer it, in reality, you've already answered it. You've said, in essence, I don't want you in my house. A man cannot remain neutral about Jesus Christ. You either let him in or you leave him out. Behold, I sat at the door and knock. He said, if any man will hear, watch this, my voice. Isn't that what we've been talking about? He's saying, if you hear my voice, you've been listening to man's voice too long. What you need to do is hear what God says. If you'll hear my voice and will open the door, I will come in and will fellowship, sup with him, and you with me. That's what he wants. And so even in this age of apostasy in the professed church world, even in this age, listen, if the church excludes him, he appeals to the individual and says, if you'll open your door, I'll come in and I'll fellowship with you. Watch finally at verse 21. And he said to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. That's the voice of commitment. God makes a commitment. He said as an overcomer, and how, how do we overcome? Through faith. Our faith overcomes the world according to 1 John. In other words, we are the victorious ones because of our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And he said to that overcomer, here's my commitment. I'll let you sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Commitment. He's made a commitment to you. Not only save you, but to glorify you, to seat you by himself in his throne. And then verse 22 is the voice of appeal. I hear that same appeal over and over again in these seven letters. He that hath an ear, notice, let him hear. There's that voice again. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you hear his voice, folks? Some who are seated in this audience right now, you've heard the voice of God over and over again. You're contemplating things in your life that you know definitely what God said. I'll ask you a question. Are you going to listen to God? Are you going to listen to the voice of man? Are you going to listen to the voice of self that would pervert your life and twist your life and get you away from God and make you miserable, wretched, naked, poor, blind? All oh, that you'll hear the voice of Jesus. I hear him and I hope you'll hear him saying this morning, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. When you hear that voice, when you answer that voice, he's calling some child of God to a deeper commitment of your life, to a greater trust in him, to surrender your life. When you hear him, if you have ears to hear, hear what he says. Let's bow for prayer.